This is the third episode of Doctor 101, a podcast where we break down the science behind medicine into easily relatable terms, and where we dissect the art of advocating for yourself in a medical setting such as a doctor's office or hospital. I'm Dr. Rahman, CEO and Chairman at Rode, and as you can tell by the title, today's podcast is about heart disease. Now, cardiology, or the study of the heart, is a pretty huge topic by itself. And this includes anything from congenital disorders, which are disorders from birth, valvular problems, heart failure, cardiomyopathies, cardio meaning heart, myo meaning muscle, pathy meaning disease or pathology, so we here we have disease of the heart muscle, arrhythmias or abnormal beating of the heart, syncope, which is a fancy term for passing out, and so much more. But today we will specifically focus on coronary artery disease, where there is some problem of the blood vessels that supply the heart. And this can present with no symptoms, some symptoms, as we will see in angina, or severe symptoms, as seen in a heart attack. Coronary heart disease is the most common type of heart disease, and in the United States, someone has a heart attack every 40 seconds on average. Heart disease in general is the number one cause of death for both men and women in America, with more than half of deaths occurring in men. And the total cost for Americans related to heart disease is substantial, currently at $200 billion a year. According to surveys conducted by the CDC in 2015, although most people know that chest pain is a symptom of a heart attack, only one-third of the population knows to call 911 if they think they are indeed suffering from a heart attack. That is why awareness of heart health is so important for not only those at risk, but for everyone, since noticing the signs and symptoms of of an impending heart attack might just save someone's life. We already know that chest pain is a symptom of coronary heart disease, but did you know that half of all chest pain complaints are non-cardiac or non-heart related? This is where a trained medical professional comes in handy. Chest pain is present in many conditions, including GERD, which stands for gastroesophageal reflux disorder, pneumonia, costochondritis, which is chest wall cartilage pain due to inflammation, and pericarditis, which is inflammation of the heart's border, just to name a few. As always, our job is to rule out all causes of chest pain and rule in coronary heart disease. One way to help clinicians clue in to our desired diagnosis is through the diamond classification for chest pain, which includes three criteria. 1. Substernal chest pain. This is pain behind the sternum, which is the hard bone that you can feel at the center of your chest. 2. Chest pain during physical work. and 3. Chest pain that is relieved with rest. The more of these symptoms that are present, the higher the likelihood of coronary artery disease. Other common symptoms include dull chest pain radiating to the left arm and to jaw, shortness of breath, feelings of crushing pain like an elephant is sitting on the chest, and less commonly but equally as important, nausea and vomiting. We already know that the heart is a pump that supplies oxygenated blood to the rest of the body, But what happens when the oxygen supply of the heart itself is in danger due to blockages in the coronary arteries or the vessels that keep the heart alive and working? To understand how to make a more accurate diagnosis, 
we will first look at asymptomatic coronary artery disease. This means that there are no symptoms yet because the arteries of the heart aren't blocked enough, usually less than 50% occlusion. This is the reason why heart disease is known as a silent killer, because the arteries slowly clog up over time without causing any major symptoms. We will see that with a greater percentage of blockage comes more severe symptoms. Next in the spectrum of coronary artery disease, after asymptomatic coronary heart disease, which we just talked about, is angina. And here in angina, there are two types, stable and unstable. Stable angina is seen when there is chest pain on exertion, such as walking a few blocks or up a flight of stairs, and relieved upon rest. And this corresponds to about a 70% occlusion or blockage of the coronary arteries. Stable angina can be managed on an outpatient basis in the clinic, but from here on out, things that are about to get a lot more serious and therefore needs to be monitored and treated in the hospital. A bit more serious than stable angina is unstable angina, where there is chest pain even at rest, and this corresponds to a 90% occlusion or blockage. So far, with asymptomatic coronary artery disease, stable, and then unstable angina, no heart damage is done yet. As we move on the spectrum, we will now begin to see heart damage that is positive, as evidenced by blood tests that are specific for the heart. In fact, after stable and unstable angina comes myocardial infarction, or MI, with myo meaning muscle and cardia meaning heart, and infarction meaning plugged up, myocardial infarction. This essentially equates to the death of the heart muscle. Like the two types of angina, there are two types of myocardial infarctions, and these two types are called NSTEMI and STEMI. NSTEMI stands for non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, and STEMI stands for ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Terms that seem complicated, but ST segment elevation is just a pattern seen on an ECG to help differentiate between the two. In NSTEMI, no ST segment elevation is seen on ECG. There is chest pain at, even at rest, and this refers to a 90% occlusion. Greater than NSTEMI is STEMI, ST segment elevation, which is seen on ECG, and there is a chest pain even at rest, like an NSTEMI, but this is even more serious because this is a 100% occlusion of the coronary arteries. Thus, we see why another name for coronary heart disease is ischemic heart disease, with ischemia meaning lack of blood flow due to obstruction. And as we learned, the more obstruction there is, the more the damage that is done to the heart. Once we have a better idea of where we are on the coronary heart disease spectrum, we can further investigate to make the proper intervention and treatment. Now I keep mentioning ECG. So what is this? This is usually the first test that is done, which is sometimes referred to an EKG, both of which are the same thing and stands for electrocardiogram. 
This is when the electrodes are placed on the chest and the body to measure the electrical activity of the heart. For example, when we just talked about STEMI, or ST elevation myocardial infarction, this is the pattern physicians see on ECG, which tells us that there's 100% occlusion. That is obviously an emergency and needs stenting. Since the problem of coronary artery disease is clogged arteries, stents, which are tubes that open up the arteries and keep them open for a long period of time, are instrumental in helping restore blood flow and oxygen to the heart. In cases where there is no ST segment elevation on the ECG, blood tests are useful in that if they show heart damage, it is a possible NSTEMI which also needs stents. Sometimes the ECG and blood tests are both negative, but the chest pain is severe enough to still need further investigation. Here, the important test is the stress test, also called an exercise tolerance test, which helps clinicians measure how much stress the heart can handle. This is done by getting the patient on a treadmill, and for those who are unable to exercise, the heart is stressed by injecting drugs pharmacologically. Those with a positive stress test will eventually need stenting sooner rather than later, but less emergent than those with a recent myocardial infarction. For those of you who are more advanced, you will notice that I purposely skipped over a great deal and that is to keep things as simple as possible, since I know that this is already a lot of information. So feel free to rewind or listen to parts of this episode. In real life, you can imagine that things are much more complicated. Let's now briefly talk about treatment. Although there are many drugs that are given during chest pain, there are a few that are worth mentioning, and these are the most basic drugs given after a heart attack. These drugs will either unclog the arteries or help reduce the stress of the heart. First is aspirin, which is an antiplatelet drug. What does this mean? Normally, bleeding time after a cut should only last a few minutes, in which time platelets, an important component of blood, comes to the rescue and helps form a clot to stop the bleeding. Clot formation only complicates matters for those with a myocardial infarction, since the coronary arteries are already obstructed, and aspirin is useful here since it starts working instantly as an antiplatelet drug or anti-clot forming. Other anti-clot forming drugs can be given in addition to aspirin, especially to those who have undergone stenting. Next is a statin, such as atorvastatin, which lowers low-density density lipoprotein, known as LDL for short, or bad cholesterol, you may have heard of. Cholesterol builds within the walls of the arteries that cause plaques leading to obstruction of the arteries. Statins help break away at these plaques, helping clear the arteries. It is important not only to clear occlusions in the arteries, but also relax the heart after a heart attack. A beta blocker, such as metoprolol, which slows down the heart rate, reduces the workload of the heart. And we need to do this, especially after such a traumatic event, like a myocardial infarction, which has left parts of the heart muscle dead. Another drug added to reduce the workload of the heart is an ACE inhibitor, such as lisinopril, 
which acts as a diuretic to help urinate out excess fluid. Less fluid in the body means less fluid that reaches the heart that needs to be pumped out, and this means it reduces the work performed by the heart. Know that these four drugs are the bare minimum that are given, depending on the individual circumstances of the patient, and based on the patient, more drugs are added accordingly. So just to quickly review, in terms of treatment, we need to clear the clogged arteries and reduce the workload of the heart as well after the death of the heart muscle. Aspirin is an anti-clot forming drug that prevents further obstruction in the arteries and statins such as atorvastatin like Lipitor break away cholesterol plaques in the arteries. We also need to relax the heart by reducing the amount of work done by the heart by slowing it down with a beta blocker like metoprolol or an ACE inhibitor such as lisinopril which helps reduce the fluid the heart needs to pump out. In addition to drugs, other changes need to be made in the patient's life by looking at their risk factors or exposures that increase the likelihood of disease. And as you can safely assume, by controlling these exposures, we reduce the risk of coronary artery disease. The first and foremost important risk factor is diabetes. As we saw in the first episode, diabetes comes with its own host of problems which requires a strict low glycemic index diet, lots of exercise, and one or more medications. Although diabetes is the worst risk factor, hypertension is the most common risk factor for coronary artery disease. From the second episode, we learned that high blood pressure requires a DASH diet, including low salt intake, adequate exercise, and medications if necessary. And as obesity is a risk factor for both diabetes and hypertension, it is certainly also a risk for coronary artery disease. Obesity, high cholesterol, and a sedentary lifestyle are also risks. Smoking is another risk factor, and as clinicians, getting patients to quit smoking is something we try to preach, or at least encourage, during every visit. All of these risk factors mentioned so far are modifiable, modifiable, meaning that there can be something done about it. However, there are two unmodifiable risk factors, age and family history. So if these happen to be positive, it is in the best interest of the individual to be conscious about their health early on in their lives to take preventative measures. Before we end, your feedback is very important to me. And if you're enjoying this, please don't forget to rate and subscribe this podcast. Also, I'm happy to take your questions on Twitter at AskDoctor101 or email me at AskDR101 at gmail.com. I just have a short message from our sponsor, Dr. Dermacare, a skincare clinic for all of your skincare needs, including microdermabrasion, permanent hair removal, chemical peels, dermaplaning, and so much more. They're located in downtown Peekskill, New York. Call 877-266-0300. That's 877-266-0300 today for more information and schedule an appointment. Thanks for listening.